0: But I really wanted to lay down some, uh, some framework for um, uh, the next sermon series uh, that we'll be doing. Uh, and that is uh, essentially a series on rediscovering the Father. And uh, today is a desert God desires a desert people. Um, so why don't we turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Um, 4 through 6 is where we're going to be. At least uh, in, in in beginning, and Lord, we just we come before you, and you know between worship and Paul's testimony and, and understanding of the scriptures and the end times, Lord, we just pray that that even this word would just come all together to be a place of edification and empower us in your kingdom. <clears throat> Amen. Does I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to work, or rather to walk, worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is back in verse one and two, and now in verse four, "For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And so, what we have here is, um, you know, a a depiction of the oneness of things. As I get a prop out, uh, is a depiction of the oneness of things. Uh, And um, you know, may ask, like, why are we doing a sermon series on uh, God the Father? You know, we did a sermon series on the Son Yeshua, looking at his life and what it was like uh, in the first century. Uh, we have just finished up a sermon series on Paul, and so you know, the question here is, well, okay, obviously a logical place to maybe go would be the Father, but if we really take a look at things. We see a call here in, in Ephesians that there's a oneness, and you know, I've been around a little bit in different circles, and um, it's, it appears to me for some, not all, but for some, uh, that many people in the, in the church uh, will largely only study the Son. If we're lucky, they may be studying the Holy Spirit as well. Right? So, a lot of us, we, we, we look at our faith and we study the Son and we study the Spirit. But, you know, back in the olden days, right, there was a full revelation of the oneness of the Godhead and there was an importance of studying Father God. And I don't know, it just seems, and maybe I got it wrong, but it seems uh, in, in many perceptions that we've, we've, some of us have lost this. And it, it can create an error, uh, which I think a lot of the things that Paul. Our Paul was uh, was talking about, about interpretation of scriptures and the understanding of things. Uh, Look, you know, a lot of times in the Christian church, people will view the Old Testament God the Father as the God of wrath and anger. And the God of the New Testament, Jesus, His Son, is the God of love and peace and grace, right? But the reality is this, uh, there is tons and tons of grace in the Old Testament, and there's quite a bit of judgment and wrath in the New Testament. And that's probably why the least read New Testament book by Christians is Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation you get the fullness of the Son of God. You get the understanding of what the trials and tribulations and judgment and, and everything that Paul was just talking about. That you yourself will be judged. Um, not as a matter of salvation because we've been redeemed but on other elements. And so you know, the book of Revelation is like the, probably the least read New Testament book. Because I think it really shows us the fullness of Yeshua, the fullness of what it means to believe in a God that is completely one from Genesis to Revelation. And so I think a lot of this is going to be uh, maybe new for some of us. And there's also other reasons uh, that we need to rediscover the understanding of the Father. Jesus himself brings a lot of attention to God the Father. If you, uh, if you turn to John chapter 17, or maybe I'll just read it to you. Uh, verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him so we see here, right, there's a oneness. Like God the Father is going to glorify the Son. And the Son is going to return and glorify the Father. Right? All the good and perfect gifts that we receive are from our Father above. We see it uh, also in a direction by Jesus by pointing us to the Father. Uh, when, when we take a look at the Lord's Prayer. It says, Our Father, who art in heaven. An interesting one, right? There's a, a, a lame man. And his family comes to, comes to Jesus and says, you know, why is he lame? Is it a sin that he has committed? Is it the sin of his parents? Is it the sin of his ancestors? Why has this happened? What has he done? And Jesus' responds, as he is this way so that the Father could be glorified. So what I'm getting at here is this. There needs to be an appropriate understanding An appropriate glorification of the Father in our walk. It's what Jesus did. He points us back to the Father. There's a relationship to the Father through the Son. But many times in the Christian church, we just kind of look at the Father and the Godhead as one, which He is, but one aspect of it, right? Just the Son. And so I want to give some clarifications here on on the, the theology of things. The clarification is this. Jesus Himself says, no one comes to the Father, except through Him, except through the Son, for the Father and the Son are one. Colossians 2, 9 says, For in Him, for in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There is the oneness of them all. But the Father, God the Father, there's a lot to understand, there's a lot to meditate on. Tradition has it um, that there are 72 names of God, Um, I've never counted up all 72, uh, but there's a lot of different names of God, all depicting his character. And right there could be like 72 weeks of study. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all 72 right now, but just so you have a little understanding of things, right? Yahweh, people say Jehovah, but it's more or less pronounced Yahweh or Yowa in the Hebrew. Uh, And what does that mean? The, The God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. El, El Yom, the Almighty God. El Shaddai, the Most High God. Adonai Arafah, the Lord who heals. Adonai Sevaot, the Lord of Heaven's Armies. My personal favorite. Oh, that wasn't my personal favorite, but many of you liked that. Okay, My personal favorite is this one. Adonai Yeshua Tenu, the Lord God of our salvation. Come on, these are the names of God, names of the Father. Right? He's the God that does bring forth salvation. He's the God that heals. And of course, the Godhead is one. One of the names of of God, which is not a classical name, so maybe it's the 73rd name, and I'm reading into it a little bit. It's a little bit more poetic, a little bit uh, of of looking into the sermon series, and it's this, uh, Adonai Hamidbar, the Lord of the Desert. I don't know if there's any scripture verses in Paul Lentini probably would know better than I would. I don't, I don't know if there's actual a, a, a title for that but it's kind of where I'm going with is that he is a God that manifested himself to a people largely of a desert culture and a desert experience. In fact, I would go so far to say that this may actually be foundational. Uh, foundational that monotheism was essentially birthed out of the dust of the desert and revealed to a desert people. Midbar, desert. We usually translate it as desert, but it also means a, a wilderness place. And so I'm we'll be talking about the God of the wild, the God of the wilderness, the God of the desert. And so, fine, maybe you don't live out in the middle of the woods. Maybe you don't live out in the, in the Judean desert. I got it. You live in suburbia or the city. But here's the thing, man. There are times when you are living in a place of wildness. There's a place of a desert experience where things seem to be dry or things seem to be difficult. Anyone? Come on, right? So when we're in that place, there is a notion of the God of the difficult, the God of the desert place. In fact, it's so poetic and it's so powerful in the Hebrew uh, that in Hebrew, desert or wilderness is midbar, uh, but to speak is medaber. Same four letters, it's just the intonation of it, right? Why is that? Because it's in the rawness, in the emptiness, in the realness of a wilderness place that God will bring you to speak to you. Now, God will speak to you in the city and God will speak to you in the suburbs and God will speak to you when everything is hunky-dory and fine. But let's just be real. When there's no water and no food around and you're in this wilderness place and things are difficult, it's not that he may be speaking to you more. It's just that in the sil- si- silence you're able to hear better. And actually it's the position of the heart where you're drawing unto him even more. And so, you know, you just think, like, you think about the God of the Hebrews was largely a God of the desert. Why on earth would Almighty God, El Elyon, the one who was, is, and always will be, why is he going to say, I'm going to bring my manifestation of who I am and the word of myself, and I will reveal it to a desert people? That's kind of where I'm going off of this. Now, look, he is the God of everywhere. There is no doubt about that. But in the wilderness of life, in the desert place, It's there in your difficulty sometimes, and it's there sometimes in the actual geographical place of a desert where the expanseness, the power, and the glory of God can be seen and even sometimes better understood. The Lord has taught me things while going through a difficult time of life more powerfully and more deeply and more rooted in my spiritual DNA than when things are hunky-dory. That's just me. I don't know if anyone else that has the Lord like, really, really spoke to you during the trials. I mean, it's going back to what Paul was talking about in the worship, like we're asking to be purified in fire. That's probably not going to happen when you're watching your 75-inch screen TV and drinking a soda sitting on the couch in the air conditioning. It's probably going to happen in the refiner's fire, of life and of difficulty. But it's in the place of the wilderness that the Lord brings you in the stillness so he can reveal his heart and you can hear His voice. But we need to understand that he is not just the God of the Vatican or the God of New York City. He has revealed himself largely in a place of the desert. And there's a reason for that. In the city. The city is the place of civilization. And civilization actually is defined as the fulfillment of men. In the place of civilization, there is much of man. And at times, it is now going to become hard for man to see the works of God. It's, I'm going to be honest, for me, I mean, maybe it's just how I'm, I'm wired, but I think in the, in the history and development of mankind, like, you're walking down the streets of New York City and you're staring up at skyscrapers, you're staring at the glories of men. Right? I don't know if you've ever been to the Gideon Desert and there's nothing around and you stare at the beauty and the colors and the hues, and the power of an infinite God. Uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, a Jewish man, says it like this As civilization advances, the sense of wonder declines. Such decline is an alarming symptom of our state of mind. Mankind will not perish for want of information, but only for want of appreciation. The notion is like you, know, you go to your tap, you turn on the faucet, and water comes out. You turn to the left, it's hot. You turn to the right, it's cold. That's pretty cool. But where's the wonder in that? Where's the profound nature of appreciation that you can go and flip a switch and the sun is now in your room? But I'm telling you, when you're a desert people and you're like, the well has run dry, we now must hop on the camels and go to the next well and the water is there. There is a wonder of appreciation of the Creator. And so in technology, I'm not preaching against technology, although I would love to, but I don't think my wife would, would, would want to go with me, but that, that's, so we, we don't do that, right? One of my dreams is to spend a summer with the Amish. It's so yeah, a legit dream of mine. Um, where was I? Yeah, so I mean, you know, it's just the notion, like, you know, In the place of technology, the wonders of God can be hidden, right? I mean, it's like everything is so easy. We don't even know what's going behind the scenes of how this is all happening. And even if you do look at the scenes, you know, you're you're, you're giving praise to uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. But to to know right now that there is a sentient being standing right here and that there's air going through my lungs and between the oxygen and food, the body can break it down and turn it into calories and create blood and pump blood and have a brain that's functioning, working, declares the wonders of the Lord. And the the amazing nature of Him. And so to be brought to the desert place, the place out of the place of men, He'll bring you. Oh, anyone ever lose a job? Everyone ever lose a job? Here? When you have a job, isn't it wonder that you are able to glory in your ability to work and provide for yourself? Let's just be real. When you have a job and it's going well, how often are we like, oh, thank you, Jesus, for giving me a job today and be using that as the way to provide for me? Now, has anyone been out of a job and you're like, oh, Lord, I can't pay the bills. Please usher and bring down your provision. (laughs) Adonai Yireh, the Lord, right? The Lord who provides. Come on, like this is what I'm saying, it's so easy. And this is not a modern thing. This is a thing going back 6,000 years. Come on. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, need to be brought to a physical desert place that teaches us sometimes a spiritual desert place where he will give them a covenant and bear them a promise. It's Moses that has to go to the metropolitan state of Egypt and Cairo and be brought to the land of Midian to be a simple shepherd in order to come face to face with God and to receive His Word. God could have spoke to Moses to that level in Cairo and in Egypt and on the banks of the Nile, but there's too much of men. I need to bring you to the mountain of the Lord where there's no one but I, a burning bush in you, and the stars above, so you can recollect and see the grandness of my creation and the power of my breath. David is brought to a, to, to a desert place, to a, really a wilderness place. Why? To be anointed king of Israel. John the Baptist roams the wilderness. Why? So he can learn what it means to prepare the way of the Lord. Yeshua, Jesus, is even brought to the desert place to be tempted by Satan so that he is even more seasoned for ministry. I'm telling you right now, if you're in a desert place, you should glory in it. Lord, you brought me here. That means you're training me and working in me and polishing me and getting me ready to show the glories of God. The desert versus the town. The desert, the wild, the wild place versus the town. I remember I I got into this conversation with one of uh, one of the uh, the professors at graduate school in Israel, who 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 is a a religiously Orthodox man. We were talking about the beginnings of Genesis, uh, and uh, the Lord just downloaded me uh, to this idea, and and I it wasn't me. I'm I'm not glorying me like I had no idea. The Lord just like I was just speaking and just came out. And the rabbi, or really the, the professor of biblical studies, just sat there and he was like, never quite thought about it that way. And it's this. Um, it seems to be that the wilderness place, the place of uncivilization, seems in the early text of the Bible where the Lord is revealing himself in this manner. it seems to be almost a place of redemption. If you take a look at this, right, now, we, we kind of forget some of the, the nuances to the story. For example, right, uh, God makes Adam and Eve and he forms them in the garden. It's known as the garden, what, what is it called? The garden of Eden. Of Eden. It's the garden of Eden. It means it's a garden that is of a place called? Eden, Eden. So there's Eden. And inside of Eden, there's a, they're actually distinctly different. There's a place called Eden that is pleasant. But then there's the Gan Eden, which is the, the, the real, like, paradise place where Adam and Eve are. Right? It actually says that the cherubim puts his swords outside of the garden, I believe. But what happens here is he places Adam and Eve in this very special place. And, of course, they sin. And now what happens after they sin? They're cast out of the... Not out of Eden. Out of the... we we'll are going to read the story. They're not cast out of Eden cast out of the garden. Now they're in Eden. A place called Eden. It's a place called the Garden of Eden. and there's a place called Eden. The Garden of Eden is inside of Eden. So now they're in Eden. They're, they're, they're brought now actually to a wilderness place. The garden was not wild. It was perfect. It was pristine. It was absolutely the ideal, right? But now because of the sin of knowledge of good and evil, really what was going on here, right, it I taught months ago, is that they now believe that they were the ones who could determine what is right and wrong. That's what that knowledge is. They have become the gods. They are the arbiters and the compass of morality. Not God. So now they're in the place called Eden, right? And they're there, of course. And something tough happens, man. What happens now when they're not in Eden, but they're in... I'm sorry, not in the Garden of Eden, but they're in Eden, the land of Eden. we got Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4. Then Cain, after killing his brother, right? Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. Cain is not banished from the Garden of Eden because his parents were banished from the Garden of Eden. Cain is banished from the land of Eden, and he has to go to the place of the land of Nod. Okay? Nod in Hebrew means to wander. He's destined now to wander. And he says, I'm so afraid because there's people out there. Put a mark on me so they know that they can't harm me. And so now he's in a very, very wild place. And I I, I believe to some extent that that wild place of the desert place could have been an opportunity for Cain to hear the voice of God again. It could have been. Now, I don't know the rest of the story of Cain because the scriptures don't tell us. I don't know what really essentially completely happens to his life. But I do know this. The place in the land of Node of the wild place, is quickly going to become a problem. And it's quickly going to become a problem, as I was sharing with my professor, is, is essentially this. It's because the wild place began to get civilized again. Man started to come together again. Man, it says in the scriptures, started to build cities again. And in the city place comes the things of men. I mean, it gets so bad that there's a guy by the name of Lamech that says, ah, people talk about Cain killing his brother, but let them sing a song of Lamech, for he has killed 70 times 7. There's even more murder and destruction, right? See, the desert place of your life And the desert place in the Scriptures can either be a place of redemption or a place to further neglect God. It's going to be up to you. Cain and his descendants settle a wilderness place. They kind of almost start over again. Then we get to Noah. Noah. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of men that it was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. People talk about like how could a loving God wipe out planet earth? Guys, what does it say? Every inclination, every single inclination of his mind and his heart was evil continually. It did not like stop and sometimes have a good thought. It was always always evil. And what does God do? In the place of this civilization, a place of men, not the place of the desert of God, he has to destroy it again. And there's a baptism of the earth that happens. A watering, a renewal of the earth, a purification of the earth. And then what happens? might be a long time since we've read our, our Sunday school stuff. Noah has his his sons, his sons go out to the earth, and some of his sons start to build a city again. Which city? Babel. Babylon. And they build a city, and they build a city, and they make the Tower of Babel, right? And what's going on here, Genesis chapter 11, verse 6 says this, And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down. And they're confused their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. What we see here in the early text, it seems to be that every time that man starts to congregate together and starts to build a civilization, corruption and sin is heightened. Now, I'm not saying, hey, let's all move out to Utah or or, or Montana or something, but there seems to be a biblical principle of this. When you move away from the place of the wilderness where you are highly, highly dependent upon God, and you move into a city... And now you don't need him as much because you could turn the faucet on and water comes out and the police are there and the firemen are there and you have insurance for your house and insurance for your car and you have workers insurance in case you don't have a job and all these things that we put together to protect ourselves. It's in that place where God is trying to get in to speak where you're like, I don't need you. In fact, I'm building a tower so I can be like you. I don't need you. I don't even need you to be in the heavens because I'm building a tower up to the heavens. I'm becoming like my God. And God says to the heavenly host, let's go down and scatter them for who knows what they would be able to accomplish. My Lord. Where does he scatter them to? To the wilderness place. To the four corners of the earth, essentially. Thank God in Genesis eleven twelve, we finally have a wild and desert people again. Generations go by and people are creating more civilizations but God goes to the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and he says Abram lech lecha, go out from the place of men go out from the place of civilization to a land which I will show you and now Abram who eventually becomes Abraham is going to become a desert people the land of Ur, I've, I've read the articles and the journals and the archaeology, I mean, the land of Ur was, was like, at the time, in the Chaldea, it was, it was essentially like the New York City of the day. Like, they had nice stuff, there was trade routes, there spices. For God to be like, hey, go out there, it, it would be like us, literally, like, you know, living where we live with all the comforts and just start walking. Man, on that Abrahamic journey, the amount of dependency that is needed upon God... Abraham is going to become this desert people. Now, why is this? If we got the worship team, come on down, please. Or Mario or. Maybe we're going Zeke. Awesome. Oh, I think that was actually in the notes, right? That was in the cards. They just forgot. Right. Elizabeth. Oh, man, Lord. Look, I'm just trying to. I'm trying to pick a, paint a picture for us. It is so easy to box God out by the things of men. Where well, we don't need Him anymore. Or we don't think we need Him anymore. People say all the time, you know, there's all these healings that take place in like third world countries. Why is that? Those people have nowhere else to turn to, they can't go to a pill, they can't go to chemotherapy. There's no advancement, there's no technological civilization, things that they can make their God. They're going to go straight to the source. I'm not preaching against medication, I'm not preaching against chemotherapy, I'm not doing that. What I'm saying here is when you're forced to only go to Him because there's nothing of God, it changes things. Many times in a technological civilization, man becomes his own God. But to be brought to the desert place means that we're now going to have to depend on Him. In the vastness, the rawness, the emptiness, and in the grandeur of God, or rather, I should say, the grandeur of God can be seen in that place. And it doesn't have to be going out to the Sahara Desert, and it doesn't have to be going to the Judean Desert. Sometimes we're there when we're just setting our eyes on His beauty. But sometimes the Lord is going to bring you there. That desert, difficult place. Don't look down on it. Don't even necessarily wish it away. Use it as a place to look at the grandeur of God. And depend upon His nature again. To say, Lord, I've, revealed, I, I've relied so much for my wisdom on Google. Instead of you. You see, the city place houses city gods. And maybe today it's technology, maybe today it's entertainment. But city places, in this poetic sense and in this ancient sense, are gods of things and gods of places and gods of statues and idols. City gods are, are, are a place of gods where essentially what you think and what your culture thinks is appropriate becomes the God. You are to have no engraven image of the Lord thy God. No idols. Why? If you have an idol, you'll know your God through the image instead of His word and through relationship and intimacy. But I think there's another level to it. If you worship an idol... You can't be a desert people. Idols are statues of stone. They're heavy. They're burdensome. They'll keep you back. You can't be a people of wandering. You can't be a nomadic people if you have idols to bear. And I encourage you with this. The idol in your life or the idol of a city people ties you to the place and thinking of men. It's heavy and burdensome. And you cannot become a wilderness people that way. Come on. We are a people where we we come and go as the Spirit shows us the way to go, right? Where is the coming and going of the sons of God? Uh, James Michener is a, a local guy out of Doylestown who passed away years ago. Wrote this brilliant book called The Source. It's on the history of, of the land of Israel. Phenomenal book. And he's got a scene in there where essentially one of the Hebrews is beginning to encounter with Elohim, the desert God. And, he, and he it's a God of such all-pervasive power that he must and cannot be tied down. He is everywhere, above, below. He always existed so vast like the desert. He encompasses the entire earth and the heavens beyond. I just encourage you with this and ask you this. Do you tie your God down? Do you tie him down with an idol of man? Where he's not able to show you his greatness and his grandeur because you've become a city people. Not physically but spiritually a people who depend upon man and the invention the technology of men and the convenience of men that you've forgotten the grandeur and the magnificent of magnificence of God you are not you and I both spiritually and largely physically are descendants of a wilderness people spiritually were of the adopted sons and seeds of Abraham Isaac and Jacob a desert dwelling people but this nation itself was started essentially by a wilderness people a, a people who came to the shores of New England the Puritans No cities, no towns, no wells, no roads, no industry. And they came. They came with a wildness in their heart. We want to create a society that shall be a city likened unto a hill, right? To show the power of the gospel unto the nations. Just like Israel is called to. The foundations of this nation come off of this principle of being like a, a, a wild and, and, and people that are not depending upon the state, not depending upon the government, but depending upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Uh, and so, here is just another prophetic act. As we did with the 1776 flag. Right here, is a copy of the Geneva Bible, one page. This is the Bible that 400 years ago the Puritans brought over to this nation. Right here is a page to remind us of the Word of God and the foundations of our actual nation. A people who are looking for the purity of God, to set up a new nation where we depend upon God and not the king. Let us, in this church, not depend upon Dave. Not depend upon Maria. But depend upon the God of the desert in our life. I leave us with this. To make the connection to America, not just Israel, being a, a people of the wild. A people that need to depend upon the goodness of of God in the frontier place. All America lies at the end of the wilderness road. And our past is not a dead past, but still lives in us. Our forefathers had civilization inside themselves, the world outside. We live in the civilization they created. But within us, the wilderness still lingers. What they dreamed, we live, but what they lived, we dream. We look back at the past, we say, look at how these people live. The Puritans, the Quakers, the great revivalists, the nation of Israel themselves. Look at the way that they lived and we dream about that. But I'm telling you that that wildness spirit, that that good wild, that, that place where I depend upon God is still inside of us. Because we're called to be a desert people who follow a desert God, not allowing the things of men to hold us back stagnant in one position spiritually, but being able to move forward lightheartedness with a, with a, a light yoke and a light burden or an easy burden. And so why don't we stand? I'm just going to edify you with, with a scripture from Isaiah. And so largely today is setting the scene, setting the setting for where we're going. And our next sermon series on rediscovering the heart of the Father. The first thing to be aware of and to know is that He reveals Himself in the desert to a desert people. And there's a lesson to be learned. That in the desert places of our life, it very well could be a place where the Lord is saying... I want you to depend upon me. Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18. Do not remember the former things. Here's a command. Do not allow your mind to remember the old way of living. And the old pains. And the old things. I mean, you need it to be healed. But you can't live in the past, O Israel. You can't live in the place of Ur. Do not remember the old ways and the old things. The former things. Nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So, Lord, we come before you. And if some of us are living right now in a place of difficulty in desert, Lord, I pray that whatever they're going through, job, no job, sickness, not sickness, family problems, Lord, that it would be an opportunity where they would be able to reflect on the grandeur and the wonders of God. And how we can be dependent upon you, Lord. That it could be a place where they understand that in the desert place we can't have idols. We can't have the idols of the way that man thinks and be dependent solely on men. But we need to be dependent upon the living God. Adonai Hamidbar, the God of the desert, the God of the desert place. And Lord, I pray that those of us that are not going through a wild wilderness desert place that we can maintain the focus and the relationship and the astuteness of eye and ear to glory and ponder the wonders of you Lord that in the midst of this amazing civilization that we live in that we can still be a desert people that even though the desert people may come out of the desert. You can't take the desert out of the people. Raise that back up in us again. Raise that up in us again. Amen.